0: Today, on episode number 358 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Sneaky Assignments with Matt Reed.
1: Produced by Innovate Learning, Maximizing Human Potential.
0: Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. You may well have already read columns by today's guest and you might know him by his pen name Dean Dad Matt Reed has been the Vice President for Academic Affairs at Brookdale Community College in New Jersey since 2015. Prior to that, he's held administrative positions at Holyoke Community College and the County College of Morris, as well as DeBry University. He's also the author of Confessions of a Community College Dean, which can be found at InsideHigherEd.com. An accidental administrator, Matt's doctorate is in political science from Rutgers, but the world had other plans. Matt Reed, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. Could you tell us how you first got into working in a higher education context?
1: Yeah, I was sort of a, I'd always intended to be a professor. My, my goal, I want to teach poli-sci. So I, you know, did policy science so undergrad. I went to grad school, got the doctorate, and I was all set. And lo and behold, nobody was hiring. So I had to kind of improvise. Uh, this was the late '90s. I had come out of Rutgers with a, a degree in political philosophy, which was not a hot seller. <laughs> but it, as it happened, there was a branch of what was then DeVry College of Technology, and is now DeVry University, about a mile from from Rutgers. And they were hiring a whole bunch of people very quickly, PhDs, in order to qualify for state licensure to offer bachelor's degrees. So I got hired there. And I remember at at the interview, the department chair who interviewed me was an Amherst grad and the, the chair of English was a Williams grad. And they were both like, oh, you're a Williams grad too. Great. Welcome to the group. (laughs) I thought, really DeVry? Okay. And. Taught there for a few years, but at the time this was the late '90s. Uh, Dubai was expanding very quickly. It was that first big internet boom. Mm-hmm. So they they started opening campuses in other places and started sort of pulling uh, the local administrators away to those other places to to get them started. And so that created you know some openings. And I remember looking around as the openings came open. I looked around my department at some of my colleagues and thought, Oh God, no! Lovely people, great teachers, but. Not managers, they're just not, and so i I went into administration kind of out of self-defense. I just didn't want to be managed by any of those people. <laughs> and I, I felt like I would be you know fair and I would be sane and and that would be fine. and candidly i was I thought of myself as a pretty good teacher, but there were a lot who were better than I was, and so I, I felt like I was definitely replaceable in the classroom in that sense. So I moved into administration and did that for a couple of years at DeVry, first as associate dean of gen ed and then dean of gen ed. But as I moved up the, the hierarchy and got a little bit closer to where the decisions were made, I saw that the profit motive consistently defeated every other consideration. So out of sheer disgust, I started sending out resumes and I found my way to a community college in Northwest New Jersey, uh, the county college of Morris, where I got hired as a the dean of liberal arts in 2003, and I've been in the community college world ever since, so that's 18 years now.
0: What do you remember about an early surprise of the community college context?
1: Well, DeVry was you know, a, a for-profit, publicly traded company, and it thought of itself as sort of a tech company, even though it was also a college, which created a weird sort of culture clash. When I got to, to CCM, it was a public, tenure-based, unionized institution where the median age of the full-time faculty when I got there was 60. I was 34 at the time and coming in as a Dean and it was, there was a real culture shock, the speed of everything seemed to have slowed way down. I felt like I'd gone back in time. In some ways it was a lot better because, you know, you didn't have the, the profit motive sort of undermining all the academic concerns and I liked that part of it. And it was certainly more affordable for students. I liked that too, but just the, the pace really surprised me it was so much slower and nobody else there seemed to think that was weird Mm. (laughs) and i just a little like one story i remember i had a, a question for the the finance vp one day and i caught him in the hallway and i said you know can i can i grab you for a few minutes and he said yeah i'm free a week from thursday (laughs) And I I thought by a few minutes I thought like maybe now or maybe after lunch Mm -hmm. and he was like yeah we we can make some time a week from Thursday but all right I just I was really surprised by that and after about a year of experiencing culture shock on a daily basis the way that I process ideas is by writing
0: Mm
1: -hmm. it's just how I think I I think better at a keyboard so I started writing uh, about what I was seeing. And this was when blogs had first become kind of a thing. And so I started posting them online as these sort of virtual messages and bottles um, (laughs) under a pseudonym as Dean dad. And it, it sort of caught on over after, after a little while, that was 2004 when I started doing that. And then in 2005, started doing it five days a week. And then in 2007, inside higher ed came along and said, we like what you're doing. Can we run it? To which I said, um, yeah. <laughs> so that kind of took off, and I became this sort of running commentator. Mm. Well, um, I've... Not that anyone asked, but yeah. it just it felt like nobody else was doing it. And it, it was at the time it felt risky. That's why I used the pseudonym in the beginning. At this point, I think it's—it's it's really not. But at the time, you know, blogging was still considered sort of déclassé, vaguely disreputable, and you know, higher ed is a very reputational business. So, you know, I, I used the, the the pseudonym Dean Dad, because those were the two roles that I spent most of my working, waking hours doing at the time I had two small children. And it, it it was kind of my tip of the cap to a lot of the the feminist theory that I'd read in the 90s, where it was, you know, professor mom or, or whatever, sort of working women writing about the struggles of professional careers and motherhood. And I admired what they were doing and remember thinking, oh okay, if, if, if we're going to be thoughtful and serious about issues of work-life balance, then men have to own them too. That we can't just kind of treat that as a women's issue, because that's really kind of the problem. So I would write about being a dad and, and having a night where, okay, one night you have to go to the college musical and the next night there's an award ceremony. And then the next night there's some kind of emergency. And meanwhile, the kids are frantic and And that seemed to strike a chord with people. So uh, the boy and the girl, as I call them on the blog, have been characters since the very beginning.
0: I want to ask you two change questions. They're both COVID related. You mentioned the girl. And you recently wrote about it's prom season now in the U.S. My kids are younger than your kids. And so this is not something I've contemplated. How are proms likely to look different during COVID than they have in our past?
1: I think the short answer is I can tell you in three weeks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> oh, you're not on the planning committee. <laughs> um, yeah.
1: It's the 22nd, I think. Yeah. Uh, the, the piece that I know about it, there's no dance floor,
0: hmm.
1: which to me kind of raises the question, well, then what is it? They, they have big round tables that I guess you can see 12 students at a table. The students who can attend can only be students from the school district. So if your boyfriend, girlfriend is from another district, too bad. They all have to wear masks. It's just, but at the same time, the girls in in her class have this sort of uh, social network thing going, where when when a girl gets a dress, she'll post pictures of herself in the dress, and they'll all post comments, "Oh, that's beautiful! That looks great on you," and so forth. And they're, they're still excited about it. So you know, my prom was in the '80s. I it was a very different world. Looking at this one now, it's like. I don't quite recognize it as a prom, but she does. Hmm. And that's what matters. So Hmm. she's excited. She got her dress. We'll see how it goes. But I I can't quite picture a prom without a dance floor.
0: My second change question has to do with you talking about the speed with which things happened when you first entered the community college district. How has speed changed or not under COVID?
1: Things have sped up over the years, particularly since uh, 2008. When the the great recession hit and the sort of the money went away, COVID changed the whole experience of time and space. Uh, we're off campus. Most of the time, most of our meetings now are on zoom. And that in a way has been surprisingly positive. And let me clarify when I say positive, I don't mean worth it. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. Absolutely not worth it. Mm -hmm. But some meetings, especially large meetings like college Senate meetings, college forum work pretty well on zoom because you can have the chat function going sort of parallel to whatever's going on on the screen. And only one person can speak at a time. And sometimes in large gatherings, that's an issue. Um, You also don't have, you know, there's no back of the room where you can't hear very well, that just doesn't exist. And it's easier to share screens, which is actually a very big deal for academic meetings. You know, if you're proposing a change in language to a college regulation or something. You can actually share your screen and everybody in the meeting can read it. That's not true in a physical meeting when they put it on a projector, no matter how hard they try. So that part has changed quite a bit. The time piece of it has been, I guess, a mixed bag. At first, the first few weeks of COVID felt like forever. It just felt like time stopped and everything was just in suspended animation. But as we've been in this mode longer, People have been getting better at it. And I noticed I was in a, this morning, uh, was in a college forum meeting and the chair of the college forum, that's kind of our college shared governance body opened with, I can't believe it's already April. And I thought, okay, that's a change because, you know, last year in April, it was sort of like, I can't believe it's still April. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and now it's, I can't believe it's already April.
0: Yeah. So
1: I think folks have, have made the adjustment in a lot of ways. It has been a learning experience, I'll say that.
0: Even though you have spent your time in leadership roles, I know you also have continued to teach. Can you tell us about what a sneaky assignment is and how it came into being? Uh,
1: I haven't had a course in a few years, but sneaky assignments, uh, one of my favorite tactics when I taught. I'll give you an example. I, I taught American government a lot, and the exams usually featured some kind of essay questions. I didn't want to ambush the students with questions. That didn't seem like a valid technique. So I, I used the technique that I had learned in grad school where I, I'd give them a list the week before the test, I give them a list of maybe five questions and I tell them, okay, three of these are gonna be on the test and you have to write on any two of them. So they do the math and figure out, okay, that means I can skip one. And then I would tell them, you can bring in one index card, no larger than I think it was five by seven or four by six. And anything you can handwrite on that index card, you can use as a cheat sheet. And they would look at me like, what? <laughs> you know? And say, no, anything you can physically handwrite on, on that one index card, you can use front and back. That's fine. Uh, anything you can write on that, you can use. And they sort of you know, looked at each other and cackled and they were like, I can't believe this guy is so easy. And then they'd come in the following week with their index cards and they, they do the test. And I remember as I returned the test the following week, uh, one year, a student said, Hey, you tricked me. You tricked me into studying. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yep, you got me. <laughs> that was the entire point that in, in preparing the index card, they were so focused on making it as effective and as useful as they could that they sort of accidentally studied. And so... When they thought they were doing the sort of brilliant criminal maneuver, they were actually doing exactly what I wanted them to do. I call that a sneaky assignment. They, they didn't realize they were doing an assignment. They thought they were getting away with something, but they were actually doing an assignment. It works really well when you can build it. Right. When, when you can construct it. Right. And it, it, they got a big kick out of it when they were, when they figured out what it was. And some of them even, you know, had the sort of grudging respect for it. Kind of a tip of the cap, like okay, you got me. That was a good one. Uh, Sort of the way you'd respond to a really good pun. (laughs) I'm a a fan of that technique uh, when when you can do it.
0: Yeah, we've had so many good conversations on the podcast before about this tension, and I think it's an important tension between wanting to recognize the world that we live in today in the context and context in which we find ourselves. As in how easy it is to look things up and yet the importance of having things memorized such that they become more useful to you. And I Uh think such important discussions that we have. But when it comes to the I think back to exams I gave early, early on in my teaching and I can tell you that going the all the way in the direction of having completely open book, open note tests actually, in my case, statistically wound up harming the students. Because Mm. I didn't I didn't help them study for the test. I helped them get an artificial sense of preparedness. I didn't do it intentionally. I would never do something like that intentionally. But I just looked at the scores on the test and they went down because I think there was just that over reliance of thinking that that's going to help you. But by having it shrunk down like that, I have to think about what I'm going to put on the index card and prepare it. Yeah, I really do think that that's a nice approach to help people be able to study in that way. Yeah, it's
1: kind of silly, but it worked.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what can you tell us about student speakouts?
1: We have a, the student government at Brookdale does a speakout once a semester where they invite any student from campus who wants to ask a question of this the college's leadership in a public forum to show up and in, in pre-covid times it was usually in in sort of a, a large multi-purpose room. Now, of course, it's on Zoom. And the, the students submit questions and the president is there and all the vice presidents and most of the deans and some of the, the folks who run the facilities. And the students will ask, you know, whatever they want to. It it's a little bit of a high wire act because, you know, when I'm answering a question, I'm very aware, not only am I answering it to the students, but you know, the president is there hearing my answer. The deans are there hearing my answer. So, you know, you can't really get too wild with it, but it's helpful because you notice over time, if you go to enough of them, we've at Brookdale, I've been to 11, I think at this point or 12, I forget some of the same questions come up every time. Mm. And so you start to realize, okay, this, this is a persistent concern. This is not one person had one issue. Once this is something that comes up repeatedly. For example, every, every single time someone will ask. How come some professors don't have office hours? And the answer is because they're adjuncts. But a lot of the students don't think that way, and they, not, they, don't, they don't look at an adjunct professor as an adjunct professor. It's, it's a professor as a professor. So they want to know why some of them have office hours and some don't. And from a student's perspective, that's a completely valid question. You know, I can give them the organizational answer, and, and I do. But from their perspective, that's not necessarily very satisfying.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and I get that. Another one is, you know, how come when the, the schedule goes up for the fall in, in March, some of the sections don't have instructor names attached. And again, the answer is some of them are, are adjuncts. The students don't want to hear that, but it's the truth. And so, you know, you get, you get those sort of evergreen questions and then you get the more situational ones. At the last one, for example, there were a lot of questions about student clubs and athletics in the fall. You know, what's the plan for athletics in the fall? which I thought was a a totally fair question. And it made sense in this context. It's not one we got in pre-COVID times.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of questions about plans (laughs) coming from all sorts of contexts these days. Oh yeah. In fact, that transitions us well to our, our next bit of conversation. And that is there's so much talk about plans for the fall. And I'm sure you've seen in Inside Higher Ed and elsewhere, really good writing about, I'm thinking of, Brian Alexander is one who uh-huh. has reported out, and I, Josh Kim—I think yeah. I'm getting his name wrong. Maybe I'm not getting his name wrong, but anyway, about different phases of COVID and all this trying, trying to take the complexity with which is navigating this pandemic, and then now we're going to do it again for the fall of 2021. And I think, <laughs> right. I think what might be helpful for us to round out this part of our conversation is to talk a little bit about flexibility, adaptability, any advice that you have for people thinking about teaching in the fall, how we can think about our course design to not have unrealistic expectations for ourselves, but be able to meet that moment with students when it's hard to plan for.
1: Something the Brookdale faculty have done that, that I would love to take credit for, but they did it. I mm-hmm. really can't take credit for it. They started their own, they call it a faculty share, and it's a site on um, Canvas, which is our LMS, where faculty actually share tips for remote teaching that they've picked up. And they share them with each other. So it's a kind of asynchronous in-house professional development. And I love that idea. I just think that's great because they're all dealing with the same students. They're all dealing with the same LMS and the same bureaucracy and all of that. It's very situated knowledge. Things that work for Brookdale students may sometimes be different from things that work for Rutgers students. So the fact that it's in house, I think is, is great. And the fact that it was actually invented by faculty, they saw a need, they stepped up and addressed it. And all I did was sort of cheer from the (laughs) sidelines. Uh, I think that's great. So so my recommendation there is for faculty to, to reach out to their colleagues, Mm -hmm. uh, and to, to collaborate to the extent that they can, because, you know, for example, we have a one history professor who decided to, to kind of use the affordances of the new technology. And instead of having her students write all these short papers, she kept a couple of those, but then replaced a couple of them with, with little podcasts and the students had to produce little podcasts. It would be like, okay, you're interviewing Napoleon right before the Battle of Waterloo, go. <laughs> you know? I loved that. I thought that was brilliant. There are these wonderful affordances that technology gives. And I understand the impulse psychologically when we're all back in the fall to say, well, thank goodness that's over <laughs> and to try to go back to sort of normal. But I think that would be a waste. Uh, we've learned things in the last year year plus certain tasks lend themselves really well to to being done over zoom and some don't it would be a shame i think to forget everything that we've learned in the last year so assuming that you know you can come back in person assuming that the, the vaccinations are as widespread and as effective as we hope they are by the fall what would you keep online you know what assuming zoom still exists or i assume it will What would you carry forward if you can mix and match your formats? What would you carry forward from zoom? For example, um, a lot of faculty have said they get more students in their zoom office hours than they ever got in their in-person office hours, which kind of makes sense because the zoom office hours, you don't have to drive to get there and you can have your zoom office hours at like on a Tuesday night at seven, which is really hard to do with a regular office hour. And so a lot of the faculty have, have have said you know we would like to con- even when we come back we would like to continue to have a lot of the office hours remotely because we get more interaction we're not just sitting there and i got to admit they make a hell of a point i mean the whole point of office hours is faculty student interaction it's not filling an office so if you know zoom enables that in a way that a physical office doesn't cool <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. so to to look for those Silver linings, things we can carry forward and to suggest them to, to administrators because we're making this up as we go along, too. I mean, the, there was no playbook for this. And so if you have administrators who are willing to listen to, to suggest these things, you know, the, the, we have a professional development requirement for faculty. They have to do a certain number of days per year by contract. The folks who came up with the faculty share petitioned me, can we count this? Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. It's a great idea. Do it. To not be shy about suggesting those things, because all of the the rule books prior to 2020 had to be amended uh, on the fly. And so it's entirely possible that your brilliant idea is something that your dean or your president or your provost literally has never thought of. That's completely possible. So don't be shy about bringing it up. Worst they can do is say no.
0: I've been really intrigued by all the conversations around preferences versus realities when it comes to these things. And specifically, Mm. Robert Talbert wrote a really good piece about, he actually, it it was like a, I don't know how to explain it, a conversational version of a piece from an academic journal where they had done a study about video assets in a course and their effectiveness. And they looked at before and after to what degree did students rank them in terms of valuable, and it wasn't just video assets, this is what's standing out to me, but Everything from things like office hours and all these different assets in a course that might help you be able to deepen your learning. And what, what really struck me about his piece is looking at the before, what I thought was going to be valuable to me as a student, and then the after, what actually was. So I think you're absolutely right that the conversations we could be having now and the ways in which we could capture might better reflect reality than just some hypothetical because... I think we can't really identify those affordances very well until we're actually in it and experiencing it and learning as we go. Absolutely, yeah. Before we get to the recommendations segment, I wanted to share with you about today's sponsor, and it's a special kind of sponsor. No money is exchanging hands, just conference registrations and other ways of sharing about each other's work. I am proud pleased to announce that I am having as today's sponsor the 37th Distance Teaching and Learning DT&L Conference. It's taking place virtually August 2nd through the 5th, 2021. It is a super engaging, fun, and fully virtual event. It's got the what's coming up and the best of the best in distance education. And their goal is really to have us all feeling renewed and invigorated when we get to connect with world-renowned experts. One of their keynotes, by the way, is Mahat Bali, who has been on the podcast many times in the past and is the creator of Equity Unbound. Also joining her as keynotes, Sian Bien and Jeremy Knox, the authors of The Manifesto for Teaching Online. And so many more people will be presenting and sharing. We'll all have a chance to add new skills, tools, and techniques to our distance education toolbox, and we will get to connect with authors. I'll actually be sharing about the productive online and offline professor there. That's part of our exchange with each other. And you can earn a badge with conference certifications in distance education topics such as Fundamentals of Online Teaching Online education administration and prepared for teaching online bootcamp. Registration is three hundred and twenty-nine dollars for ninety-five sessions, and the registration opens on April fourteenth. And you can learn more at dtlconference.wisc.edu. There also will be a link in the show notes and on the weekly email. Thanks once again to the distance. Teaching and Learning DT&L Conference for sponsoring today's episode. Well, this is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And i don't think in all of the years since june of 2014 i don't know that i've ever recommended a game before i'm not much of a gamer when people have come on to talk about gamifying and games and learning i always i always feel like i got left out of um, that, that part of life's mm-hmm. schooling and but today i'm going to recommend some some games the apple arcade they re- they recently launched a bunch of games that are either retro or Sort of old games rethought, and there are three that I want to recommend from the new collection. My favorite one is called Song Pop Party. Song Pop Party is like a name that tune, and it is so much fun and I'm completely having a ball. I started out, of course, it, it makes you start out and then you have to level up and get better as you go. But so I started out in classic rock of the 1970s and I've actually found out I'm pretty good at classic rock from the 1970s. I think I have an advantage or my husband is six years younger than me. So if I were ever to play this game with him, I think I might take him down on that particular um, decade, but uh, he might he might catch up later on, who knows. But anyway, it's really fun, um, a delight. You can pick your character. And as you get level up, you can pick different genres and different decades of music. It's it's so much fun. And you can play just against the computer, which I've been doing. But you also can play on a network with other people who are on devices. And you also can play against um, strangers on the internet. So it's really fun. And then the last two I wanted to recommend, also new on Apple Arcade, is one called Spell Tower before. And it reminds me a little bit of games where you're trying to... Maybe like bejeweled, where you're matching the token or the tiles together and then they fall down, the bricks on top of it fall down, and your goal is to get all of the bricks to fall down. I've never actually successfully built words all the way down to the bottom level, but each time you build a word and you trace it with your finger, you can go diagonal or backwards or up up and down. And when you create a word, the rows of letters that are above it all fall down. And the goal is to get the whole thing to be empty, or get the highest score. And then the last one is a game many of you might have played way back when, or maybe you're still playing it. And it's new just to me, but it's called Mahjong. And it is with those tiles where you match the tiles and sometimes they're layered on top of each other. And the goal is to match all of the tiles that are laid out. And when you do that, you earn a series of points as you go. So they're really fun. Again, not much of a gamer myself. These were fun for me with Spell Tower and Mahjong to revisit them. And then for Song Pop Party, of course, a classic idea of naming a tune and but it's it's got a really fun twist on it. So those are my recommendations for the day. And now Matt, I get to pass it over to you for yours.
1: Wow, okay. Not a gamer, i got to admit. <laughs> oh, me either. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can think of two off the top of my head. One is the book Lower Ed by Tressie McMillan Cottom. Mm-hmm. It's about for-profit higher education, and it's short, and it's funny, and it's brilliant, and it's readable, and it's it's just excellent. <laughs> it uh, came out a few years ago, and she and I both worked in for-profit higher ed and in traditional higher ed. So I can vouch that a lot of what she says is absolutely spot on true. And she's also laugh out loud, funny, which is an uncommon trait in a writer on sociology of education. So definitely recommend that. And, and this other one, I get a lot of flack for this, but it's the truth. There's a series on Netflix called Bojack Horseman. Love it. It's a, it's, you have to get past the premise. It's a cartoon about a horse who's a washed up eighties sitcom star and an alcoholic. So many people can't get past the premise (laughs) and there's a lot of slapstick and stupid animal puns, but underneath all of that, it's this unbelievably gripping character study of this horribly flawed creature who's, who's trying to be better, but just sort of can't, and it unfolds over several seasons. It's incredibly compelling, um, but it, it's, it's a sort of dark night of the soul mixed with like animal slapstick and, and the it's somehow it works. It, it's a little raw. I, it's, I wouldn't recommend it for kids, but it, it's incredibly compelling and, and well done and unexpected It sort of sneaks up on you. Mm. Uh, whenever I recommend that to people, they give me a look like seriously. But it's true. (laughs) It's it's really my brother is the only one I've been able to convince so far, but it's absolutely worth watching. If you've got uh, if you need to binge watch something, definitely recommend it.
0: You've given I was funny. I was about to say, well, you've given us two great recommendations, but I don't actually know that. I'm going to assume when you talk about lower ed, I read Tressie's book called Thick and absolutely mm-hmm. loved it and have, of course, recommended it on the podcast before. I think I always stayed away from Lower Ed because I didn't realize that it was funny. I mean, I realized it's not a hoot holler. There's some very serious stuff in there, but I think I need to. I loved it. I mean, she's a brilliant writer, so I think I need yeah, to check yeah. that out. And I
1: mean, it's it's not a comedy. Yeah. It's oh, a, yeah. a you know, sociological <laughs> yeah. study. Yeah. But her sense of humor comes through throughout. And there were several moments that I laughed out loud. Oh, which is not typical for sociology of higher education. And it's brilliant, and it's short, and it's just, it's really terrific.
0: Anyway, I have a feeling about the second one that I'll end up hearing from someone, or you will, you know, from someone who's like, yeah, I've seen it and I love it too. But it's always one of the sounds like one of those things that's hard to explain to people if, they, if they've never seen it before.
1: It really is. And, and the first like episode or two is, is all the slapstick and none of the angst. So I can see where someone would try it for an episode and say, this is stupid and walk away. Yeah. All I can say is, give it time; <laughs> it'll get there, and it's really remarkable. Towards the end, it's it's stunning, but it's it does take a little bit of patience.
0: Well, Matt Reed, I am so glad that you answered my invitation to come on the podcast. I mentioned I've been reading your columns for quite some time, and really appreciate the ways in which you're very trans parent about some of the challenges of leading the context you do and also parenting. And I've really enjoyed it. And it's just fun to get an opportunity to talk to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you.
1: Thank you, Bonnie. That was fun.
0: It was a pleasure to have an opportunity today to talk to Matt Reed and hear a little bit about sneaky assignments and other work that he has done as a leader in higher education. Thanks so much for joining me. If you are listening today and have yet to subscribe to my weekly Teaching in Higher Ed update, they just got redesigned in January. I'm getting lots of great feedback on the new format. So thanks to those of you who have written in and told me that you can subscribe by heading over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. I'd love to have you join us there. And thanks so much for listening to this episode and we'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.